or the cloud. Welcome to the Heart of Healing, the pandemic episodes. I'm your host, Tom Fold. In these episodes, we'll meet loving, talented people who, while coping with their own pandemic stress, are offering others understanding, compassion, love, and ways to relax and heal, even under the weight of current conditions. Listen with an open heart to those who, in this time of crisis, are offering their hearts and talents to us all. And today, I'm very happy to have as our guest, Bill who is the co-founder of the Heart Program. Welcome, Bill. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. It's nice to have you here. Thank you. So tell me what the Heart Program is. First of all, I have to remember that it's spelled differently. Yes, yes. It's H-A-E-R-T. It's an acronym for Happiness, Self-Awareness, and Emotional Resilience Training. And heart's a new kind of a thing. We're we're really looking at two different kinds of objectives that we're that we're helping people with. Um, the first thing is a stack of of skills that people don't normally learn that allows people to be successful in their lives. Um, and the second thing is that this same stack of skills is been clinically proven to help people. Um, get back in control of their lives and come out of depression, anxiety, substance abuse, and self-harm. That's fascinating. Now, who are your primary you. targets? Who are you working with? Um, there's ways that this works for everyone. Okay. But as a business, we have to figure out where to start first. And so at the moment, we're focusing around young adults um, for a couple of specific things. One is we're, we're working with adults who are staff on high schools and middle schools and who are providing anything related to mental health or mental wellness on campus. So it's a train the trainer program. Right. So the adults know how to model good mental health behavior and they know how to talk about it with students that are either struggling or they don't want to. And then we also have a program for students that are working on getting into college. And they're, they're having challenges with the process of applying and writing essays and being motivated. And it's, that program, actually, there's two parts. One is for the student, one is for the parent. Because right. oftentimes the parents they don't know how to effectively coach their kids and they're unfortunately throwing gasoline onto the fire when they think it's a bucket of water. Right. And that's a problem. And, uh, what's the kind of things that a parent will say? I, I bet you, I, I know some of them, but what would a parent would say that would like throw gasoline on this little fire? Um, you've got it so much easier than I did. <laughs> one, um, you know, just buckle down and do it is another one. Um, your whole future is tied to you getting into this college. But no tension. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so what? what is the water that you and your teachers will put on? Sure, sure, yeah. So a, a lot of what happens is the kids don't have – they don't know how to manage their own brain chemistry. And, you know, depression, anxiety, all that stuff is really 
the result of us not managing our brain chemistry well. And so teaching them the what to do on a day-to-day -day basis to take care of their physical and their mental health, um, teach them how to approach time management, how to approach um, energy management, how to take initiative and think about doing things that in school they oftentimes were taught not to do, right. but they need to do going forward. Teaching the mental models that people that are successful use is, is oftentimes quite freeing. Well, when you talk about brain chemistry and then you yeah. talk about these other steps, how do they affect this affect your brain chemistry? So without the technical stuff, I suppose. Yeah. So at the end of the day, um, the way that you feel is a result of your brain chemistry. That's right. that's it. Right. Um, and the reason that there's pharmaceuticals for folks that are depressed or anxious is to change their brain chemistry. It doesn't change the root cause of what's going on that's giving them bad brain chemistry, but it changes the brain chemistry. We think about changing the root causes and right. helping people go from limiting beliefs to empowering beliefs, to go from not having skills to having skills. And so what we call it is a skills-based approach to mental wellness. Um, a lot of our work is grounded in something called dialectical behavior therapy, which right. is a, a clinical um, mental health intervention that was originally designed for people with borderline personality disorder. Our founder five years ago had this big aha that these skills should be taught in advance and preventatively because people who had the skills never got clinical. It's, right. It's like knowing how to swim, and if you fall in the pool, you don't care. It's no big deal, except right. maybe your phone gets wet. Versus if you don't know how to swim and you fall in the pool, that can be pretty bad, right? Yeah. You might be life-threatening, obviously. It can be life-threatening, right? And so her big observation was people who didn't have these skills had a ton of struggles. The flip side to it is three years ago, she inter interviewed me, and my background is running software teams in Silicon Valley. And she wanted to know how I got my teams to do things that people said were impossible on right. a consistent basis. And when she started asking me about how I did it and I explained the process, she said, oh my God, you use the skills that we teach in the hospital. And I said, uh, okay, what's that? And she said, it's called dialectical behavior therapy. And I said, wow, that's amazing. I have never heard of it before. I have no idea what that is. But thank you. And what does it look like in your team when you're working with a tech team or something? Yeah, of course. So, so a lot of it is stuff that's designed by to be. It's invisible to yeah. them. Right. So the first thing that I do is I make sure that I'm mentally and emotionally in a really good place so that I'm not the friction in the business process. Right. I make sure the team is able to see me purely as a lubricant for the process. Um, I figure out how to communicate with them so that they feel like they own what we're doing. That I'm not telling them what to do. I'm giving them as much ownership as I possibly can of all the stuff we're working on. And so it's theirs. It's not mine. And people work better when it's theirs versus 
somebody else's, right? Right. Um, I, I spent a lot of time figuring out how to get people who were smart but shy out of that quiet place and into being comfortable speaking and having initiative and leading conversations rather than being led. And that gets huge changes in productivity. When you, I would do- think so. I mean, if you talk about a person who's bright but shy, getting them to, to you know on a Zoom call or anywhere else to get up and say something or raise their hand is right. got to be a challenge. What, what is the secret to that? Um. So it's a one is patience. Yes, you patient. You can't just expect you can rush it. Um, you have to have them feel comfortable with you, first of all, in a one-on-one setting. And and one of the valuable things about one-on-ones is it gives me space to get to know them really well so that I can see, oh, wow, they are really, really smart. They really do understand this stuff very, very well. And they're they're going to be giving really insightful ideas versus if it turns out that they don't know stuff very well, right? Then I don't want to put them on the spot and have them throw something out that everybody else is going to say is a horrible idea, right? I I want to set them up for success. And so the one-on-one helps me understand where they're really strong. Understood. You know what I'm hearing here? This is I'm just making the comparison you were doing in the business world, and then you're talking about co- students applying for college. Yeah. It's saying this student, I mean, tell me if I'm on the right track here. This yeah. student is not suited for Harvard, but might do very well at Middlebury or some other smaller college. And, and helping them to learn that and, and, and apply there as opposed to a place which they only heard right. about or their parent might be pushing them for. Right. Or go to community college for two years. Right. Do the two plus two thing. Um, first of all, you save a ton of money. And and second of all, you, as long as you do a little bit of planning, you can take all of your, your kind of baseline courses and you can get used to being in college. Right. And then you can move up to up to a four year school if you decide that's what you that's what you want to do. You can transfer in, right? Okay. And it, it gives you the chance to to say, well, do I really want this major? Or okay, wow, maybe maybe law is not my thing, maybe software engineering. Or maybe I want to become a business major or whatever else it is that you want to do. You might decide you fall in love with physical therapy. Right, right. Well, that's fascinating. I mean, and today you're primarily working with the student population, if I understand your current beginnings here. It's, we're, we're working on helping the student population, but actually most of the people that we're teaching right now are adults. Oh. And, yeah. And, and it's a, there's a couple of things. We're, it's a train the trainer model. Right. right. Okay. We, you know, kind of the backstory of our history, uh, when COVID started, we had a pilot running in one high school. And then for the next school year, we ended up getting two districts and another school, um, 11,000 students in our program that we, while they were all virtual, they were in our program. And one of the pieces of feedback that we got at the end that was 
loud and clear across the, the population was that the students were learning skills and they were seeing adults not do them. They were seeing adults do the opposite and it was confusing. Right. The students expect the adults to know better. And so what they were looking for was role models. And they couldn't even talk to the adults because the adults didn't have the baseline knowledge to have a conversation about it. And so their request was that we teach the adults before we teach the kids. Absolutely. Now, which adults are you teaching in the school system now? Uh, it's, it is broadly anybody around the, anything to do with mental health or mental wellness. So, you know, on, on the one end of the spectrum, we've got folks who are, they're licensed therapists and they're psychologists. And on the other end, they're PE and health teachers. And even further, a different angle is people who are lay um, school admin people, but they're responsible for a wellness center. And so they, they need some skills and some communication ability and some tools to be able to help the kids who come in who are struggling. That's a tremendously yeah. powerful thing you're doing that because that thank you uh, yeah. it will be helping people help people and that's right, exactly yeah and long-term effects right and ultimately just like swimming lessons we think everybody should be learning these skills across the board because of the preventative nature of it right right it, you know it's like brushing your teeth you know everybody learns to brush their teeth and so we keep our teeth and everybody learns to swim or not everybody but most a lot of people learn how to swim and so we have a lot less drownings than we used to right because we have a lot more swimmers and you're, so you're, you know, you're teaching basic skills is what you're teaching right right We're, it's a basic skill yeah you yeah. made a statement which i love is that people you you like teaching people how to be consistently confident and have composure now those right. are two skills that are you know if you just have those two skills you can pretty yeah. much pick up anything else. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. What does it take to help somebody who doesn't have those become skilled? <laughs> um, doing things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the the thing that I've noticed is that is that by and large, people who are confident have diverse skill sets. They can do multiple different things, even if it's badly. And so and it's usually, and it's frequently, they have skills that are uh, across multiple different arenas. Like I've got a friend of mine who's a great example. Um, he's a, um, a, over the weekend, he was being a DJ. Um, but he also knows how to do carpentry and electrical and plumbing. Hi. His day job is he's the CTO of a startup um, and has been involved in startups and technology world for 20 years now. And he got started doing technology because what he used to do was setting up nightclubs with lights and music systems. Right. That's how he got started. And so he can talk with a lot of different kinds of people about a lot of different kinds of things. And he's very, very confident because he knows that he can be helpful in a lot of different situations. Right. And 
to a large degree, confidence is really recognizing in ourselves our ability to contribute to help solve problems. It's, right. it's that simple. And so if you know how to do a lot of different kinds of things, then it's easy if in a conversation to be able to offer help to somebody. Right. And, and also you're, you're comfortable just talking with random strangers because whatever they're going to talk, you know, they're going to talk about, you can be curious about if nothing else. And how can you apply that to those people you're trying to teach now, the teaching the teachers? Yeah. How do you help, help them to see that and how to do that? Yeah. So the, the starting point of that is, is it, it starts off with really a set of mental models, right? One of the, one of the most important mental models is the value of discomfort and how it's okay to be uncomfortable. And it's, it's okay to move forward while you're uncomfortable and still to do things. And I don't mean massively uncomfortable. I mean, like figure out what's a small level of being uncomfortable that you can do. Right. You know, we're not going from, I can't swim to I'm going out big wave surfing. Right. Right. We're talking, I can't swim. I'm going to go to the red cross and start swimming lessons and learn how to hold my breath in the water. Right, right. So the first time you put your face underwater and you hold your breath, it's going to be a tiny bit uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to get more comfortable holding your breath. And then holding your breath is going to become super easy. Right. And then the next piece of discomfort will be learning how to propel yourself through the water by kicking your feet while you're holding your breath. Right. Whatever their next level is, right? And so you're, you're building up these little pieces of discomfort that over time become a really big thing. Well, I can apply that. I can suddenly hear that and say, well, let's apply that to the shy person who's yeah. not talking in a meeting. It, and now maybe, how would you apply that? So one is by, by asking them things where I already know that they have really good knowledge. Right, right. And, and, and keeping you do that. And, and depending on how they respond um if they're if they're like and I, i've had to do this in the past with with um, teams where i literally took the people that were most confident and the noisiest people aside in a separate meeting and said look you know we have a problem because the shy people are afraid to talk and so and they rely on and you guys always talk and so i, I would like for you to not talk in meetings for the next six months Wow. Until I tell until I tell you it's okay to talk, right? In every meeting, I want you to stay quiet until I give you permission to uh, I understand. I want these people to like to really have a safe container. Every time we have a meeting, I want them to have a safe container until so that they can start actually speaking up, right? And luckily when I've done that, the you know, the way that I've presented it, the noisy people have said, of course. I, no problem at all. I'd be happy to do that. And it's taken a couple of months for the shy people to become comfortable speaking. Right. Consistently. And again, what I'm hearing, and I'm loving it, is that if you don't have the skills, if you can build them up slowly, you'll become comfortable with them. Yes. And now you're confident. And then yeah. you have that composure based on your exactly. confidence. Yeah. And, you know, composure is all about grace under pressure. Right. 
and everybody sees pressure differently. Um, you know, the, the thing that, you know, a moment that for me might be really stressful for somebody else might be super easy. Um, I'm not a good cook. And so if someone came up to me and said, Hey, Bill, we want you to fix blah, 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 fancy dinner. I'd be like, Whoa, that'd be terrifying. On the flip side, my girlfriend is great at cooking. If someone went to her and said, Hey, we'd like you to cook this fancy dinner. She'd be all over it. She would love it. Right. It's the exact same thing. It's just, we have different kinds of skill sets. And so we have different composure. Can we, can we also use that as example and say, if your girlfriend taught you how to make one dish or an appetizer, yep. you got to know how to do that. And then you helped her make dinner by doing the appetizer. You'd be composed yep. during that time. If someone came to me later and said, hey, Bill, we'd like you to make this appetizer. And I knew how to do it. I'd say, of course, no problem. Composure would be easy. My right. confidence would be there. Right. Um, and so... You know, confidence is something we have all the time for the normal stuff. Composure is about grace under pressure. Right. Something. And so, you know, when I was in college, I was a first responder. And one of the first things they talked with us about, and it was really a filter for the class, was having grace under pressure. When stuff goes sideways and you've got to take care of somebody, you can't stress out. You have to put your emotions aside and you have to take care of whatever the situation is. Right. And they, they trained us a lot and they put us in a lot of practice situations to, to test our composure. And there right. were people that washed out of, the, out of the program because they couldn't maintain composure and calm when they were being tested by the instructors. Sure. sure. And you know, once everything is all done, then you can cry. Right. And, but, but in the middle of it, you've got to take care of somebody else's life. Yes. Yes. And, and, you know, when it's all over and done, it's fine to have your emotions, but in the moment you've got to stay calm and collected. Well, to not to that great extreme, because that's an extreme situation, but yeah. applying for college, you got to stay calm and collected while doing it. Otherwise you won't get, the stuff done exactly. right yeah and and part of it also is to recognize that in school we're taught that we have to be right all the time but out in the real world once you're out of school if you work at a company that gets it right 50 percent of the time they're probably doing really well right and if you go to a company like amazon where they've normalized experimentation a lot of experimentation if they get it right 10% of the time, they're really happy because they're, they're testing little tiny things all the time and you don't even notice it. Fascinating. Fascinating. And so once you, once you can understand the value of, of taking the risk, the value of not necessarily getting it right, of not being sure that the answer that you think is right is right, but taking the initiative the initiative is actually more valuable than being right is. That's, that's one of the interesting things from the business side of it, it and why we talk about handling distress is because we've all been trained as kids growing up that we have to get it right. But once you get out into the business world, the most successful people get it wrong all the time. Right. Well, that's also one of the problems with companies, as I understand it, is those that insist on there's only one way of being right 
are wrong. And those who are open to, you know, to experimentation and seeing and failing, right. failing up, as you would say, I suppose. Yeah, it's, you know, Nelson Mandela, Nelson Mandela has a great quote that he never loses or he never lost. He either won or he learned. Right. And so, you know, this is the scientific method, right? We have a hypothesis. We run an experiment. We see what happens. And really, if you approach life with that methodology, it's an experiment. We have a hypothesis. We run the experiment. Did it work or did it fail? And what did we learn? And you just keep applying that over and over and over again. This takes a degree of distress tolerance. Right. Well, well, we certainly have had the last two years, two and a half years of experimentation. Oh, yeah. Very much so. Yeah. And so, you know, the the recognition that we're in an experiment, recognition that the folks that are they're telling us what to be doing, they don't actually know. This Um, has never happened before quite this way. Right. And so, you know, what they don't want to say because of how it comes across is we're making a guess based (laughs) on what we understand. We think this is what you should be doing. Right. Right. And that adds politics, unfortunately, into the situation. Totally. Yeah. And, you know, that doesn't instill confidence in the population. No, as we say, hey, we're making a guess with your health and your life, and we think this will work, right? That's not really you don't know what we're mean. doing. You always knew that we didn't know what we were doing, but now we're telling you we don't know what we're doing. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I think you do know what you're doing, Bill. And uh, I, thank you. this is fascinating, and we're running out of time rather quickly. Yeah. But no I have two things to ask you one is, what's your vision for the future? This is a, a fairly new startup in the last few years. Yeah. And you're, you're finding new ways to go. And what have you discovered and where are you heading? Um, well, the big vision is to have this be a baseline education in every school in the country, starting, wow. you know, high schools and working our way out from there or or starting in middle schools. We're still. I like I uh, believe me, having had a middle schooler, I like middle school. Start middle school. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Middle schools as a ecosystem, middle schools seem to be more comfortable with the idea of mental health for the students because high schools are so academically focused today that their messaging is we don't care about the mental health of our kids we just want them to get good grades so they they might also have passed the point of helping them with mental health do it in middle school and by high school you'll have a shot at it yeah yeah um you can certainly help them in high school it's just Nobody has mental health as a prime focus of high school students. Right. And and partly it's because they don't understand the preventative aspect of it. And that when you learn these skills in advance, you don't struggle with stuff like you would if you didn't learn the skills. Right. Swimming. Same thing. You have the basics. You have the basics. You have all these basics and they apply in so many contexts uh, that... I keep being amazed about it when I'm like, oh, wow. Here's the solution to this kind of a problem using a recipe of this set of skills. Right. Here's how we take care of that, right? 
And I can see this being applied in so many different skill areas. Oh, yeah. yeah. You're talking about students and growing up and learning. They don't even know how they, they didn't. I didn't know how to budget. If I got a paycheck, what to do with that paycheck or how to how to budget it. It just brings up thousands of ideas. I think what you're doing yeah. is superb. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So, and so at that point, what I want to say to you is if other people are enjoying this as much as I am, and I hope they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to yeah. find out more and reach out to you. What's the best way for them to reach out to you? Um, so they can email me. I'm bill at heartprogram.com, H-A-E-R-T program.com. Okay. Um, our website, of course, is heartprogram.com, H-E-R-T. Uh, well, those are good. We are, we're always happy to talk to people who are curious about if our work can be applied in their context. Right. Um, the kind of stuff that we're doing, people have already started experimenting with this for um, post-traumatic stress. Right. Um, and it's been really helpful for, pe for people with PTSD. Um, Folks that are formerly incarcerated, uh, also is you know a whole other a whole other population, um, kids that are coming from disadvantaged backgrounds. Um, a, a friend of ours came from a pretty um, pretty disadvantaged childhood, right? And he is now a fully scholarshiped grad student at Berkeley, doing wow. genomics research. Wonderful. Um, and he's a you know he's learned this stuff that we're doing. And he also is able to recognize the superpowers he has because of his disadvantaged childhood. He has a set of skills that most middle-class American kids today don't have. And I bet an understanding of the world that most middle-class kids don't have. Absolutely. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Well, as I say again, I'm, I'm just delighted that we talked and this is fascinating. Thank and you. I thank you so much for being here. Yeah, and for pleasure. Our attention to the heart program, and I hope that everybody calls you. Beautiful. We'd love to chat with them. Yeah, right. happy to help. Thanks a lot. Take good care yep. now. Cool.